You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Elizabeth Baer is the author of 10 novels, including Hammered and Blood and Iron. Her latest novel is All the Wind-Racked Stars. Thank you for joining me, Elizabeth. Thank you. Your new novel is clearly based on a Norse mythos and derives from a couple of uh, short stories that you've written, too. It's set in the same universe. Tell me about developing that universe. When did you first decide to write, turn uh, Norse myths into science fiction? (laughs) Um, that's a that's a long and, and, and complicated story, and um, the, the the oh, that's a terrible pun, Barry. You shouldn't do that. The the, the saga <laughs> stretches back uh, probably a good fifteen or twenty years. Um, the the setting actually predates the character, mm-hmm. um, and I had 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 for a long time the idea that I wanted to write something set in this sort of post-apocalyptic world in which magic and technology are very closely intertwined. Um, and I've been telling people that I suspect this derives from um, overexposure to 1980s science fantasy movies, you know, very bad ones. Which ones in particular? Uh, things like Crawl and Metal Storm and wow. the Beastmaster. Yeah, I remember Metal Storm. I saw that one in the theater. They were terrible, <laughs> weren't they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's kind of a neat idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also some of the the uh, 1960s um, science fiction, science fantasy. Sure, uh, Jack Vance. That, yeah, Jack Vance, M. John Harrison, Michael Moorcock. You know, um, I looked at the the cover of this book and I thought, wow, that looks, if it was just done like in a slightly cheesier fashion, it could be right off the cover of a, you know, 1967 Philip Jose Farmer book. Ooh, <laughs> that, that, those, those may be fighting words. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, have, so I've always been fond of these kind of crossovery settings, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't. You know, I didn't want to write just sort of Verconium Part 2 or, um, you know, Mad Max Goes to Fairyland, mm-hmm. because I think that would, well, that might be fun. It, it wasn't the book that I wanted. So I let it hang around in my head for a while until uh, the protagonist of this particular novel, Mary, showed up and uh, was like, you know, hi, I'm a Valkyrie. What are you going to do with me? I'm like, oh, great. Um <laughs> Well, I, I I have this very weird planet you could go live on, and I, you know, and she was sort of like, well, okay, this looks deeply traumatic, <laughs> and one thing led to another, uh, and I did did in fact start off writing a bunch of short stories in this setting, and in 2001, I was a, a member of an online writing workshop. Conveniently known as the Online Writing Workshop. <laughs> right, the Online Science Fiction Writing Workshop. Yes, science fiction and fantasy, but it get known known to to its its friends and fans as the OWW or Online Writing Workshop. And I was posting some of these short stories to it, and uh, a couple of people who I didn't know very well at the time, but who have since become very good friends of mine, um, who are the people who this book is dedicated to, 
uh, sort of took me aside and said, this, this isn't really short stories. This is the start of a novel. And I said, oh, you, you had to say that. Because I hadn't written a full-length novel, novel as an adult at that point. I had done, you know, the obligatory juvenilia books, but I was really just starting to get back into writing after taking several years off because of a, uh, getting married and having this horrible job that ate my life. But then at about the same time, I also got laid off. So there's a limit to the amount of daytime television you can watch. And really? so I started writing a novel. <laughs> well, now this novel, uh, one of the things that first caught my eyes were, were the unique chapter titles. And I looked at those and I go, what? what? What, what is that? Those look like words, but they're not quite words. Turns out they are runes. Yes. Uh, tell us about, did you do some research into the rune poems from which they came? There are 24 chapters in the book, and there, there are 24 runes in the runic alphabet that I chose to use for the chapter headers. The, the runic alphabet that appears in the book is a slightly different runic alphabet. It's um, the one... It appears in the narrative of the book, I should say. Mm-hmm. It's it's the one that's mentioned in the Eddas. The prose Eddas, which we all get to read in college if you're an English yeah. graduate. <laughs> yeah, the, the prose and poetic Eddas. And, and specifically, um, there is a poem, a long poem, in which Odin goes through and uh, enumerates the 17 magical runes and what they do and what they're good for. And then he says... There is an 18th, which I know, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. And the, the 18th rune and my speculations as to what exactly it might be plays a, a critical part in the plot of the book, so I don't want to give too much, about, too much away about that. But the magic in the book is, is based fairly, well, I shouldn't say based, it's extrapolated from Norse mythology, but I, basically what I, what I wanted to do was write a book set in a world in which a, a Viking culture had developed through a Viking culture in which magic actually worked and which supernatural beings were real had developed through you know the same stages of quote civilization unquote that our Anglo-Roman civilization has done and uh, and explore what that culture might be like and how it might be different from our own. Well, they have some different core values, don't they, that really inform the narrative of the book? Yes, very much. There's, there's um, the, the, the whole uh, Judeo-Christian concept of, of mercy and forgiveness and compassion and turning the other cheek is not so much a cultural value of theirs. Um, oh, well. <laughs> which I guess would Oops. be an understatement. Yeah. Um, the, uh, their, their cultural values tend to be more like things like endurance and self-sacrifice and what we would call noblesse oblige, you know, the, the obligation that one has to one's vassals and things of that nature. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a moral society with a, with a slightly different set of moral values than our own. And uh, a very uh, class-oriented society, which is also something you're, you're quite interested in, isn't it? Yes. Tell us about why why are you interested in in class societies and how does that play out in this novel? Well, I'm 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 interested in class societies. I, I think in part because we try so hard in our current our current American culture not to talk about class. We try to pretend it doesn't exist and that there's this vast middle class and then a very few poor people on one side and a very few rich people on the other, but they don't really matter. And of course, that's really not how it works in real life. 
No, there are lots of real definite strata. Oh, yes, and, and certain things are, are much harder if you're starting off from a position. I mean, things as, things as simple as getting a good education, if you happen to not come from a, a family that has the money to pay for you to go to college or the leisure time for your mother or father or grandparent to sit down and help you with your homework. You know, it's, it's an entirely different question for, for a kid who has, you know, a single parent who is working full-time or two parents who are both working um, and who may be working a job themselves to, to get a good education and, and go forward in life than it is for somebody who is, if, they're, if they have a job after school, they're doing it for pocket money, you know, as opposed to help their parents pay the bills. Well, now, how, does this, uh, how do these observations play out in the novel? The prota- most of the protagonists of the book come from the underclass of, of the city that the story is set in. Um, and they are, in, in some cases, they are, they are very brutally poor people who are scrambling very hard to make ends meet and to care for their families. And a lot of them do some things that they're not proud of. And one of them is actually a, a vassal, a servant. While she has free will, she's not necessarily permitted to exercise it as much as she would necessarily like. That's a, well, that's, that's an interesting uh, per- perspective to, to provide. Um, could you talk about uh, the, the, um, how free will plays out in the Norse uh, vision of the world and how it plays out, again, in your novel? Ah, well, that, that is a, an interesting, deeply interesting philosophical question. Um, I, how, how pedantic do you want me to get on the subject of Norse mythology and free will here? Well, start, uh, uh, let's see, uh, sophomore college class. Okay. Uh, that's, that's probably about the level I can do it at. So, <laughs> okay. Um, the, one of the basic tenets of Norse mythology is that everything is doomed. And, and by doom is a much more complicated concept than, than we would necessarily consider it. You know, they have this, this concept of Ragnarok, of, of the twilight of the gods and the fact that the world will end in this particular way through an inevitable sequence of events that all, everybody already knows is going to happen and which cannot be prevented. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of... of and, and, and yet, there is still a concept of what we would call free will, of personal authority and personal honor and personal choice, and that these things are important. And I think, it, it seems to me from my reading that, that the interesting thing, or the most interesting thing about Norse mythology, and I kind of tried to reflect this in the structure of the book, mm-hmm. where you have three different ends of the world, one of which has happened, one of which is happening, and one of which is about to happen, mm-hmm. that the Norse mythological concept of time seems to be, it's not necessarily linear. Because when, when we talk about, you know, doom or Ragnarok or a prophesied future that is inescapable, it's not so much that you can't stop that from happening as that it has already happened. It is happening around you. That's what uh, Stanislaw Lem calls the pericolypse. It's the apocalypse that's already come to pass. Only yes. Nobody noticed. Yes. There's a sense of, of, of simultaneity in everything in, in Norse mythology. All of this stuff exists as a matrix. So you have a world in which... There, there are two groups of gods in Norse, mytholo- Norse mythology. There's the Aesir and the Vanir. And the, the Vanir are, the most famous ones are Loki and Freya. The Aesir are Thor, Odin, 
those guys. To do a superficial analysis of this, essentially the, the, the Aesir are at different times at war with the Vanir, allied with them, oppressing them, and then at war with them again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in the structure of the mythology, all of this stuff happens at the same times, which is why, it, why for example, Loki becomes such a confusing character, mm-hmm. because sometimes he's one of the good guys, sometimes he's one of the bad guys, and, and there's, no, there's no narrative explaining how he moves from one point to another. There's no, not even any, any pretense of linearity. This is just the way things are. Well, that's, um, a, that's a fascinating uh, viewpoint, and, and I think uh, a useful I, – I, I can see how this is helpful when you're writing a science fiction novel. Yeah, and, and the, the other thing is to consider you know, how harsh the environment was that, that brought us this worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this idea of the inevitable end of the world and, and hell being a cold place where you starve. Well, six months out of the year – <laughs> you know, you're you're eating lutefisk and waiting for the sun to rise. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty hellish to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, it's it's you know, so so this idea of the inevitability of the end of the world is, and, and the end of the world being winter, is absolutely perfectly, you know, it's it's psychological realism. Yeah, it's an externalization of 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 the internalization of of how you feel about the world when you live under those conditions. Um. One of the things that I really like about this book that I think it does really well is to blend um, this system of magic you talked about and, uh-huh. and with high tech. And I love this kind of – and this is the – I think the essence of science fantasy and, you know, encapsul- the uh, literary encapsulation of uh, Arthur C. Clarke's famous observation that any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I, don't, I, I mean, I'm not, not to – not to brag about how well I've done this, but, but specifically that science fantasy plays with that idea. And, and you've now, um, this is uh, something that you know has been ha, has been done before. But I'm, could you talk about some of your literary forebears and, and maybe uh, what you wanted to do uh, differently, specifically with the Norse mythology blended in there? A lot of the the science fantasy that I read growing up was not. It was much bigger on invention than um, what I think of as, as it was top-down world building rather than bottom-up world building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and one of the things that was really important to me was to take this beginning set of conditions. Okay, you have this, you know, circa 800, 900 Viking society, which is going to go on to become the dominant society on this planet. What does it look like in 2,000 years? Mm-hmm. And so, so that was so. I think that's very much a, a bottom-up kind of world building, mm-hmm. and that's why I was able to to do that kind of integration. Because I started thinking about well, what does what does runic magic look like after two thousand years of development and exposure to you know cyberpunk level technologies? Because it's not gonna it's not gonna remain the kind of things you do in in caves, you know, and, and carve on bits of stone. It's going to become mm-hmm. something else entirely bardic or skaldic magic look like in a world where you have recording devices and electric instruments I, how does that affect stuff mm-hmm. and you know so that was that was very much very much the thing that i wanted to wanted to to bring to this concept of science fantasy well the other thing i think that you bring is is really strong characters and, and a variety of very unusual characters and you you ground them well, uh, well a you. lot a lot through the, the their sexuality could you talk about creating these characters and using them to build from the ground up and incorporating their sexuality as a, as a part of uh, 
their character building. Oh, that's 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 kind of interesting. I guess um, I had sort of an unusual upbringing, uh, not so much by modern standards, but by the standards of, of the 1970s. Um, my my parents are divorced, and my mom is a lesbian, so I grew up in a in a non traditional family. When there weren't things like non-traditional families on TV or in books. Hmm. And growing up, um, most of the people I knew were not, you know, bog-standard bog standard heterosexual Christian Caucasian couples <laughs> with, with 2.5 kids and a golden retriever. I just, I didn't know those people. I knew some of their kids in school. So I tend to write the people I know, and I've always grown up in these, I guess you'd, I, I've always lived in these kind of not really suburban neighborhoods, but not really urban neighborhoods either. I think the, I, I think the technical term is fringe neighborhoods, where mm-hmm. you're sort of, sort of transitional. There are a lot of apartments, and the, the, the demographic is very mixed. There are older immigrants and some young up-and-coming professional people with, you know, maybe young kids and um, large extended families and small nuclear families and people of non-traditional lifestyles. The sort of places that would be funky and bohemian if they were in the process of being gentrified, but they're not. Mm -hmm. So people roll up their windows when they drive through. (laughs) 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 And, you know, I just kind of write the, I write the people I know. Now, now you you mentioned this was uh, developed in an online uh, writers workshop, the OWW. Yes. Could you talk about how you present a novel to people that you might not even know? I mean, you don't. How how do you know how to take the criticism? Oh, you just close your eyes and hope, mm-hmm. um, and 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 hope you can ident- you know <laughs> hope you can identify the people who are really smoking the Hello Kitty crack pipe before you take them too seriously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, it's the, well, it's the same way. It, it was actually a very good pre- practice for, for being a published writer because, you know, in the, in the days of the Internet and, and Google Alerts, you can, you can read all the crack-brained things that people say about your books. Um, they're, they're right there on Amazon. You can go look mm-hmm. uh, if you are so foolish as to do so. <laughs> so I think it was, it was very good practice for that because I, I have really good filters at this point. Now, uh, this book is is part of a, a an ongoing universe you've created. Do yes. you think you're going to visit this universe again? And yeah, these characters well, again? There are um there are two more books in this uh what I'm referring to as a not a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is this is a an idea that I stole lock stock and and smoking barrel from um Dave Duncan. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I have to give credit where credit is due. It's it's a it's a series of three related books, um, all of which tell different stories about the same group of characters at different points in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I hopefully, when, when read together, they will form a kind of gestalt. Uh, and the idea is kind of, kind of to do the pulp fiction thing where you look at everything you've learned at the end and you realize some stuff that you didn't know as you were going through. Mm-hmm. But... We'll have to have to wait and see if I pulled that off. the The second book is called "By the Mountain Bound." And um, is it in progress, or is it? Uh... No, it's it's delivered. Oh, uh, wow. It'll be it'll be out. And I'm working on the third book now, which is called "The Sea Thy Mistress." I have I have a draft of it, but it's a very 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 bad old draft. Um, it's about 
five or six years old and really needs a lot of work. But the, the, the book that's coming out next October is called uh, By the Mountain Bound, and it takes place 2,000 years before the current book. Now, uh, one of the things that interests me is, you know, I remember when uh, Hammered came out, and, he, mm-hmm. and there was, you know, a, a lot of talk about, you know, because you're clearly a talented writer, and, and that's a, a wonderful oh, book. Well, thank you. Um, this is your first hardcover. And, it is. And and I'm wondering how that feels, and and what where that decision came from. Well, it's 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 my I should say it's my first solo major publisher hardcover novel. I have a I have a hardcover mosaic novel out from Subterranean Press called mm-hmm. New Amsterdam. And of course, Sarah Bonnet and I wrote *The Companion to Wolves*. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's—I think it's just a matter of the different business models of the different publishers. Uh, my my first books and, and my science fiction is still being published by Bantam Spectra, mm-hmm. um, and they put everything out in mass market paperback, um, which is one of the reasons why they they tend to do really well in the um, the Philip K. Dick Award. <laughs> oh, right, right, running because they mm-hmm. put almost everything out as a paperback, and that, of course, is the paperback novel award, paperback original novel award. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And Rock decided to do the Promethean Age stuff in trade paperback, mm-hmm. and Tor is is doing the hardcover thing. Um, I'm sure that they have some complicated metric involving the amount of money they can charge for a book and the number of copy, copies they think they'll sell in any given format that, that informs this decision. But I don't know what it is. You know, this has uh, been selected as a sci-fi essentials book, which I guess means it's a tie-in to the science fiction channel. Uh, what do you know about that? I, I don't know much about it. I, I found out that I think it means I get a slightly bigger advertising budget. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I, that's... Because I think it, I think they do they do banner ads on sci-fi and that sort of, on the on the website, not the TV station, obviously. Which is a shame. It would be nice if they would advertise books on TV. Wouldn't it? Well, I mean, like Dan Brown gets advertised on TV, but on the other hand, he sells a lot more copies than I do. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> well, uh, by by orders of magnitude. <laughs> well, yeah, Dan Brown. Well, there's there's a different topic entirely. Yeah, <laughs> entirely. Orders orders of magnitude more books than I sell, you know. And and Stephen King and Dean Koontz get TV ads too. But again, with the the orders of magnitude thing, um, I, I as far as I know, it it means that there's a little bit more advertising budget. Um, it may mean that the book is more likely to get picked up by chain stores. I know Target will be carrying this one. Wow, uh, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've gotten I've gotten some some pretty good grocery store distribution and stuff on the science fiction, but now that's a, that's something that I always really loved was buying books at the grocery store, and it's kind of gone a little bit downhill. I, I mean, know. I there... remember when I was a kid, I used to buy. There was a Lucky's near me, and they had. That's where I bought all the uh, uh, H.P. Lovecraft adult fantasy books and the Lord Dunsany books. You know, they had a big wall of science fiction. Yeah, well, you know the story behind that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the distribution. Well, well, tell 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 us tell us. Okay, well, very very briefly, what happened is that, um, and and Patrick Nielsen Hayden does a much better job of explaining this than I do. But basically, what happened was uh, there was a collapse. Uh, an, an engineered collapse in the distribution network of all these small small distributors, small companies that used to go out, which were like you know one guy, two guys with a station wagon kind of. When I say small company, I mean small company. Um, used to go out and stock these wire racks. You used to get in your your grocery stores and comic book stores and drug stores and so forth that had you know 
a whole bunch of, of paperback novels stuffed into them, one, one copy of each, mm-hmm. slightly tattered from people pulling them in and out of the racks. Um, and these guys would, because they were, they were individual operators, could be very quirky and could stock to the needs of any particular store. So, you know, if they knew they had a, they had a drugstore that attracted a lot of, you know, Daniel Steele fans, they could stock a lot of Daniel Steele books in that particular wire rack. And they, if they knew they had another drugstore where the, it was down the street from the movie theater where the science fiction geeks hung out, you know, they could um, put the science fiction novels there. And uh, unfortunately, for for the, the magic of the wire rack of our collective childhoods, um, the there is now a much more modern, conglomerate, one-size-fits-all approach to stocking things like supermarket bookshelves. Well, that's a, that's a tragedy. Well, um, we'll look forward to finding your books wherever we can find them. <laughs> well, thank you. And they're, they are always available online. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a, actually a great uh, sales source. And there's a lot of – it's nice because not just via Amazon, but there's a lot of uh, small booksellers, yeah. uh, Mark yeah. Ziesing and a lot of people who will Powell's hand and, – and Mysterious Galaxy. Sure. Um, and for people who are in Canada, uh, Baca Books in Toronto ships. Right. Baca Books, famous home of uh, Tanya Huff and uh, Cory Doctorow. And Cory Doctorow and uh, um, Michelle Sagara West. Wow. And, I mean, the, the entire staff, uh, pretty much the entire staff of Baca Books are, are award-winning science fiction and fantasy authors. Or, you know, people who, people who used to be staffers there and have gone on. Um, it's a it's a pretty amazing, Toronto is a pretty amazing city when it comes to, to science fiction writers. It's just, you can't can't pitch a rock without hitting a Hugo nominee. <laughs> I've been speaking with Elizabeth Baer. Her new book is All the Wind-Racked Stars. It's a hardcover out from Tor. Thank you for joining me, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's always a joy. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.